And then the other piece that's paramount is how the patient feels. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it doesn't do you any good to have a number on paper. It's, you know, people do that all the time with thyroid. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll put them on thyroid medications and they'll normalize their numbers and they never even ask if they felt different. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, what's this about? Are we treating a number? Are we treating the person? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a combination of both that we have to look at. And, and you said it very clearly um, that people want black and white. And this is the old way of thinking. This is complicated thinking. You know, there was an article, I think it was yesterday, uh, from, uh, it was in Medium, it's called Facing Complexity Means Befriending Uncertainty and Ambiguity. And there was a quote in there that I loved, and I've got it here on my desktop somewhere. Most, most causality in nature is not linear in the sense that effects follows cause in a linear way. Due to radical interconnectivity, systemic interactions and feedback loops causality is more often than not circular rather than linear and this is describing a complex system and you know here it's a classic example of the hormone system you know it's got it's got interconnectivity interactions and feedback loops that all affect the outcome and if you're not considering all of these then you're not taking the full look at the system to to create an outcome that's going to be optimal. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 50 of the Collective Insights podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm the one behind the scenes of this podcast, helping to make these episodes happen. We want to thank all of you guys for listening. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of the podcast. We have over a quarter of a million downloads and are number 28 in top shows for the entire category of science and medicine on iTunes. Thank you so much for your support and all the lovely reviews you leave for our podcast. We read each and every one of them and we're so grateful for you being on this journey with us. As a thanks to our community, we're sharing a special offer at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned until the very end so you don't miss out on this offer for podcast listeners only. In this episode with Dr. Stickler, we will discuss what peptides are, how to use them, and how peptides fit into a new paradigm of healthcare. We want this episode to be shared because it has the power to transform people's health and ultimately their lives. So if you know someone who's struggled with their health and is in search of cutting edge research, then will you please share it with them? If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash collective insights, and we'll work to get those answered by Dr. Stickler on a future episode. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined by one of our other hosts on Collective Insights, um, Dr. Dan Stickler. So, so excited to have you here. I love getting the chance to meet with you in person, talk to you on the phone, and generally pick your brain. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's nice to actually have a recording of some of our conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I find them fascinating. So I hope um, all of our listeners do too. So Dr. Stickler is the co-founder of the Apparent Center for Human Potential and the Apparent 
Academy. He is also the medical director here at NeuroHacker Collective, and his journey began began as a general vascular surgeon, which I just learned. I love it because I'm always learning new things about your interesting path and this quest to discover an ideal approach to optimizing human potential. You've been through functional medicine, alternative care, holistic approaches, naturopathic medicine, age management medicine. I mean, the list is long of what you have studied. And each modality on its own felt short for you to to really get this optimized human out of the approach. And so a lot of it was focused on disease and not much focused on on health and wellness. So you've continued this search. It's it's at this point almost an obsession, as I gather, um, into genetics and epigenetics. You have thousands, tens of thousands of hours of research and several thousand client interactions. And you are proving that clinical output outcomes with implementing your approach really have the ability to to push our evolution forward in a positive and meaningful way. So I'm I'm so excited to get to dig in to all of these things. I think today on the agenda we're, we want to talk about peptides and hormones, um, both super important. So again, welcome. Um, where do you want to start? Uh, how about a little bit of background on what kind of goes into the approach that we use because I think that that kind of sets the stage for how we use the stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So one of the most frustrating aspects for me was that, um, health and wellness in general, um, was focused on a, on looking at, at the human system as being complicated and, what I probably need to clarify here is the difference between a complex system and a complicated system. So it's, to simplify it, a, a complicated system is is one that follows rules and uh, is very is 100% predictable based on an input. The output is 100% predictable and it, it's not reductionistic so you can't take parts of it and identify exactly how each part functions based on the input. And this is what medicine has become is and, and health and wellness in general uh, has become this this idea that the human system is complicated. And the problem is it's 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 actually a complex system and complex systems behave differently. They they are unpredictable. They are adaptable and you can't be reductionistic with them. It's all based on probabilities. We are and, certainly learning that lesson the hard way. Right? <laughs> yes, we are. And. And I just, I couldn't continue in the medical system that was promoting that. And even when I was doing wellness, I was, I was still in that same system. I was into functional medicine and, and I realized that functional medicine was taking the same approach, just using different modalities. And I said, you know, something's got to change here. So we looked at, at how this can happen. And my wife was high up in the military at the time. And uh, we were looking, you know, can we take this to government organizations? Uh, how do we, how do we create a new paradigm? Because we looked mm-hmm. at it and we said the the current paradigm is just so, so far outside of of where we are that it's not a matter of changing the paradigm; it's a matter of creating a new one. And what we decided was you know what, we're going to have to do it from a grassroots standpoint. So we created the Pyrrhon Academy for people that were looking to practice this kind of 
of complex systems approaches to health and wellness. And we currently have 300 coaches worldwide and about 30% are physicians, about 30% chiropractors. And then the rest are divided among naturopaths, uh, dietitians, exercise physiologists. Uh, we, have, uh, we have energy workers. We have, um, we have pharmacists. We have psychologists. Uh, we have quite a few pharmacists, which is quite surprising because, you know, we're very much lifestyle-based, but uh, using future-focused modalities that are, that are very much not pharmaceutical. Right. <laughs> so uh, it was surprising. But they were all, they all said they had the same idea, but that we were the first to kind of put it together into an organized program and they were excited and it's like a tribe. I mean, you know, we're all wanting to, to create this change of the paradigms or create this new paradigm. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, that's what, um, that's what kind of got Daniel and I interested in each other, um, Daniel Schmachtenberger, we had a conversation about, it was supposed to be about Qualia. It was a podcast interview I was doing with him, and we spent five minutes on Qualia and the next 45 minutes on air talking about complex systems, and then uh, the next hour off air talking about complex systems. So it was uh, it was kind of a, a match for sure when we uh, when we got on a call together. Fantastic. Well, we feel so lucky to have you as the medical director here at NeuroHacker. Uh, so peptides are this area of medicine that um, it sounds like really is is one of these practical ways you can implement this new approach, right? Peptides, the way I understand it, and certainly you have way more expertise in this than I do, so I'd love to get your input. But what I understand is what we look at the body very differently when we're talking about adding something like a peptide. Peptides are created in the body when health exists. When they're, instead of looking at what's going on when someone is in a disease process, we instead return to looking at what's going on when somebody ha- is in an optimal health process. And what is the what are the differences and how can we add the things that are there when someone's healthy versus adding things to control the system and expect, <laughs> expect some change in our favor when there's a disease process already happening. Do, do I understand that correctly? Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest way I like to look at it is um, peptides fall into a, a new class called biologics. Uh, biologics are are basically substances that are natural to the body in a sense. So we look at uh, we look at stem cells. We look at uh, peptides. We look at uh, the new realm of exosomes. These are all what what I would refer to as biologics as opposed to pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals. So when you use a biologic, the body's familiar with it. It recognizes it. It knows what to do with it. And so um, the the coolest aspect is that, that biologics are very laser targeted for what you're trying to do. So what you're trying to create you can use a biologic to go in because you know that's how it works in the human system and target that and it's it's highly specific to the point where it is almost 100 percent on target outcomes versus any off target effects and when you're using uh, even supplements like uh, nutraceuticals and uh, other other uh, pharmaceuticals and even bioactive foods you're still looking to create an effect in the system. You are, are causing the system to react 
to it. Whereas the, the peptides and other biologics are designed to work with the system and enhance the system. So it's, the system's familiar with it. It knows what to do with it. Uh, it's exceedingly safe, which is what's, what has been amazing about the peptide work that we've done, is that they, they are so specific and so familiar to the body that even if you would overdose in some way, the body just says, oh, you know what, it's not a big deal. I know, I know what this is, it's too much of it, so I'm just gonna downregulate. So the, the ability to be so precise with the actions that you wanna, wanna have has opened up this whole new world of uh, precision care. So why hasn't this been around for decades? Well, they've actually been around for quite a while. Um, we've had some some biologics that have been available since the early '90s, and they just the problem with biologics. It's it's very hard to patent a biologic, and the the commerce system doesn't allow that. Essentially, uh, there's one biologic that was developed out of the University of Washington that is highly effective. I mean, it'll it's it's seven orders of magnitude stronger than BDNF on learning and memory and, and creating new synapses in the brain and it's naturally in the body. Problem is it can't be patented because it's the same structure as what the body makes. And so I know that there's a pharmaceutical company that's actually looking at it and saying, you know, how can we modify this to patent it before we throw it out there on the market? And so you don't get a lot of research into biologics because nobody's set up to make money off of it. That's the downside of uh, research and development right now is when a company can't make money off of it, they're not going to spend the, the money on the research, and research is only coming from funding. Uh, so I, I see that as the major uh, impediment to uh, to really advancing peptides in a way that they really should be right now. One of the big reasons we need a change in the paradigm. Exactly. <laughs> Why we need to create a whole brand new one. So can you talk specifically about a handful of the peptides? What's out there? BPC-157 is one I've heard a lot about. Should we start there? Sure. Uh, yeah, BPC is one of our favorite. Um, BPC is just, it's just a, a healing peptide. I mean, you've got to heal something, you take BPC. I mean, it is... It was identified because they saw when when you have an injury or a wound or anything like that, you see this sudden upregulation of BPC in the genome. So it's it's a responsive um, upregulation that occurs, and so they isolated that. There's that, and there was uh, thymus and beta four, which is another one that they kind of gets upregulated during that period of time, and they tested it and. The, the interesting thing about BPC is it's actually produced in the stomach, so it's a it's one of the only peptides that is uh, resistant to digestion. And there, there's aspects of the, they create this resistance to digestion. And it was initially kind of used for healing of, um, of ulcers in the intestine. But then they found that it was hugely impactful for healing the gut, period. I mean, it's about the only intervention I use now for gut healing. That's it's, a big it just call. works that well. I know. I mean, it, and I just can't, I, I've had, and it, this is all anecdotal experience, but, you know, of the several dozen people that I have put on it, it has worked 100% of the time. So for 
me, it's kind of hard to, yeah. it's hard to downplay that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, very rarely do we find something that is that effective. Um, but the other thing for BPC, I mean, and this was, BPC was used in the realm of uh, athletes under, under the radar for many years because it wasn't something, it's hard to test biologics because they're produced by the body. But professional athletes were using BPC to uh, recover from injuries, especially tendon and ligament injuries, muscular injuries. Uh, it is absolutely incredible for healing those in, in a very rapid way. And then recently, uh, I think WADA came up with a test that could test for it. And, and I don't understand why it's banned anyway. I mean, it's not really a performance enhancement drug, although it does have nootropic effects as well. But um, it doesn't. it's not really enhancing the performance per se. It's just keeping them from getting injured and helping them recover faster, which I think should be allowed. But, you know, that's, that's the nature of it. But right. yeah, PPC is, uh, I mean, we have, we have several, um, uh, in the category of healing peptides. Um, there are probably a dozen or so that have good clinical, uh, outcomes. And most of it's, it's hard because a lot of the research is done on animals because you just don't have the funding to do the human trials really right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the information that, that is coming out are from the biohackers, the self, uh, the ones that are using it into N of one studies on themselves. So the quantified Reddit, self movement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we're, we're going to see a lot of uh, healthcare going because even you know even population-based studies aren't doesn't it doesn't mean a great deal to me. It gives me guidance, but it doesn't tell me that oh yeah okay well if it works for this population it's going to work for me. I, I've seen that fail too many times. And, and in this so, case, these are made by the body, so quite right. safe. We don't have to worry. You know, in N of one studies, if you're doing something um, more radical and there's a high risk of harm, uh, then there might be some caution around that. But in something like peptides, where the risk is so low because it's a it's a natural substance made by the body, it really is a no brainer. Well, some of the downside, I mean, you have to mix it and inject it. So you have to get sterile compound. You have to make sure that it it is good quality, which you can't really get unless you're getting it from a pharmacy. Um, Injecting yourself, you're always prone to the risk of of infections and then mixing it the right way. Um, You know, a lot of people will go to research chemical companies online and purchase it and try to do it on their own. And most of the time they can't figure out the dosage and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not 100% uh, without risk for sure. Um, and I, my understanding was that BPC-157, you could get uh, orally. Is that correct? Oh, you can you can get BPC orally, um, but I, I can tell you, I don't know of any research chemical companies that are selling it as an mm, oral form. I see. Uh, the only place we get the oral is from the the compounding pharmacy right now. There's a there's an online reseller that's a retailer that's selling one called Body Protective Compound or Complex and kind of marketing it as BPC, but there's really no research behind it. And mm. you, Typically, if you're paying under $100 for BPC uh, in an oral form, you're probably not getting the the real deal. Got it. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. That makes a lot of sense in terms of risk. So if people are doing these N of 1 studies, um, this quantified self, 
it is super important that they know what they're putting in their bodies, right? Because that's not a great study exactly. if you don't know. And um, yeah, you and I have had that conversation around how do how do people know if they have really used BPC or if they've really used thymosin alpha or eptalon or any of these peptides if they've just gotten it off um, off. A website online. And so the compounding pharmacy, in order to get one of these through the compounding pharmacy, you need to be established with a doctor who can prescribe it. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yep. So someone like you or I, as I learned from you. Um, okay. So BPC is one of our favorites. Can you had mentioned thymosin um, and you said thymosin beta, I think. So I'm more familiar with thymosin alpha, but can you break those down with the different thymosin peptides? Yeah, so the thymocins are are derived from from thymic uh, proteins or peptides essentially. So you're you're dealing with ones that have uh, been isolated or identified there. Um, when it comes to healing, especially musculoskeletal stuff, the the BPC and the thymosin beta four those are the the two major ones that we look at for healing and sometimes we use those together we use them in conjunction because they work in a, a little bit different way and um, I like some people like thymosin beta four over BPC but um, it's easier to take a capsule for sure but BPC has anti-inflammatory uh, characteristics to it. It helps migration of healing cells into the area. It stimulates T cell production. Um, it helps the B cells to create antibodies, and it helps blood vessels grow in, into wounds. It's been used in a um, in a eyedropper too to heal corneal. Uh, tissue wow. and so it, it's got amazing healing properties to it I mean we can actually get it in the eyedropper form and uh, and the recovery of the cornea has been pretty dramatic with it but uh, it is an injection it's not one you can take orally and you usually do a four-week or a five-week course of it and it works amazingly well for for healing um, it helps prevent scar tissue from healing too which is a really cool aspect of it so you can um, like if you have a muscular tear or something like that a lot of times you'll form these these adhesions or fibrous bands in there and TB500 helps to, to reduce that risk as well so you mentioned angiogenesis or the formation of new blood vessels you also mentioned uh, increase in T cells and some modulation of B cells um, is there any risk if there's cancer present so like if somebody were to have a lymphoma or angiogenesis is one of those things that happens to a tumor so is there risk if say cancer is present and maybe we don't know about it yet and then you add BPC and potentially um, or it was BPC, right? Uh, well, both of them will cause uh, blood vessel um, angiogenesis. So, yeah. So, is there some? I mean, I'm just thinking from a theoretical perspective. I have zero knowledge around this, but would you be worried about a risk there? Uh, no, because I, you know, especially if you're talking about upregulating T cells and things like that, I would be less inclined to worry. You know, and this this comes back to that complex systems thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may be contributing in one aspect to to a detrimental effect if there's a cancer present, but there's also a positive effect with the really upregulation of T cells, which will help kill the cancer. So, uh, you know, where is your balance? Where where do you draw right. the, the line on that and, mm -hmm. and look at what are the pros and cons of it and what's the net effect? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is the application to complex systems, right? That, exactly. Yeah. And there, and certainly with my naturopathic training, there's this inherent self-healing mechanism in the body that I, that I trust. And so if we are adding something that is beneficial, I, I trust that the body will use that in a way um, that will promote health and not more disease. Exactly. Um, so... Apart from the healing, we talked about the thymocin and BPC, um, longevity and telomeres comes up a lot with the application of the peptides. Which ones are those? Well, the main one that people talk about with that is epitalon or epitalon or epitalon. You know, it doesn't matter how it's pronounced, <laughs> but um, that is the the kind of the penultimate peptide for longevity, and that one is um, a peptide that was developed by Dr. Cavinson, who is a researcher out of uh, University of Saint Petersburg, I think, in Russia, and he he had done studies in the late 90s early 2000s where he took these elderly individuals i mean he and and these were these were definitely old people i mean they were like 70 to 90 years old and he did a uh, six year and a 12 year study with this group and he measured outcomes with them i mean he found like antioxidant levels that were hugely upregulated. Superoxide dismutase got upregulated, and in kind of um, work assessments, they found this big improvement in physical work capacity. Subjective well-being was was like five times greater in the group that was receiving the epitalon. They had huge bone mineral density increases. Wow. They got better sleep, twenty-eight percent lower mortality. Um, help their cholesterol level, their um, their skin elasticity. I mean, who doesn't want all these their, things? Their melatonin, their memory. I mean, you name it. It just it was crazy what wow. they were finding with this. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so epitalon or epitalon, however you want to say it, sounds like it's right. working miracles. And it's similar there that it would come from a compounding pharmacy. And is that one available orally or just injectable right now? That one's just injectable, but the cool thing about it is you only have to do like a um, hundred milligram course twice a year, and most people do that in like twenty days. So they'll wow. they'll do five milligrams a day for twenty days, and then they just do it twice a year. So it's a nice, you know, we we don't know what it does for a younger generation. I mean, the only studies that have been done were was that study that that Cavinson did, um, but you know, the the Russian researchers are pretty meticulous with their data, especially the university-based researchers I mean so um, and I've, I've I've seen from a very anecdotal standpoint people doing the epitalon and found uh, really huge improvements for some I mean I've done it and I didn't feel anything different uh, but I've only done two courses of it so far <laughs> and you know time will tell and I'm going to be I, I monitor my epigenetic age periodically and I haven't done my epigenetic age since I um, since I did it so we'll kind of see how that that changes over time and are you monitoring that when you say that is that telomere length or something else no, you know, I, I do measure my telomeres. I use um, I use uh, LifeLength out of uh, Spain just because they get shortest percentage of telomeres. Uh, it's one of my my go tos. I, I don't like average length. Uh, I think uh, can't remember who said it, but uh, I, th- I think it was. Uh, 
Bill Andrews said, uh, if you're in a room full of dynamite, you don't want to know the average length of the fuses and you yeah. want to know the shorts. <laughs> um, right. If you're comparing yourself to an unhealthy population, does that really serve you? Exactly. So I want to know how many short telomeres I have, because those are the ones that are going to explode on me. Mm-hmm. And and so I monitor those. But it, telomeres, you know, it, you really should only do it about every five years to get a good idea of what's happening. Okay. And then even then, there's variables that can play in there that can kind of mess with that. I really like uh, Steve Horvath's um, epigenetic age studies that he did, and and there's they're also not 100%. There's variables that play in there, but I I really look at the dynamic of it and how it changes over time, and it's looking at the the methylation patterns on our DNA because they established these methylation patterns kind of fit this criteria of this age mm. and we get greater and greater or changes at least in the methylation patterns as we age they correlated that with a bunch of biometrics i think they had 40 biometrics that they used to to identify the actual physiologic age and then correlated that and it's a it's a pretty strong correlation and so we can we can measure that do an intervention and six months later run the test again and actually see changes in a person Person's, uh, biologic age by by epigenome. So, are you th- saying that potentially with epitalin, you might run that test, and although a patient may not feel significantly different, we can see some of these biomarkers getting better. Absolutely, I see. Okay, so there's multiple ways to sort of gauge success with that one, and though some people feel physiologic differences or, or subjective differences after using it, not everyone will, but they may still be getting the benefit. Right. And, you know, everything we do, we measure. Uh, if you can't, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And, you know, we do this, every, every client that comes to us, the first thing we say is, why are you taking this? And what are you, what are you measuring to see if it's doing what you think it's supposed to do? It's a nice if, way to simplify things. Yeah. And if they can't identify that, then we take it off. I mean, I have people coming in with 20, 30 supplements mm-hmm. a day and they have no idea why they're taking it. They read about it somewhere and said, oh, okay, I'm going to take it. And and sure enough, they're getting toxic levels of, of different micronutrients. And I'm just like, okay, let's stop this craziness and actually use uh, KPIs. Let's use metrics to to actually apply this to to your health and create and really take the human system as a as a system and manage the system rather than try to micromanage these little things that that we think are going to make big outcomes. I love it. You know, and I think one of the issues in in my medicine is, uh, yeah, all these supplements and supplements, I really put them in the camp with processed food, right? If we can avoid them, that's ideal. Get the nutrients from food. And this also, you know, this this whole idea of the hormetic effect of, of there needing to be some stressors so that the body has the ability to adapt. If you go from a 73 degree bedroom to a 73 degree car to a 73 degree office and then back it's you don't you lose that ability to adapt to hot and cold environments and it's sort of the same thing if you're constantly putting antioxidants in the system or you're constantly adding extra hormone or you're constantly adding one thing or another then you may lose the ability to create it yourself right and and stress stress is a requirement for healthy longevity and you can quote me on that because, and I know you believe this too, 
there you have to be challenging the system constantly for it to adapt in a very positive way i mean we know that that living systems in a non-stress environment have a short life they have high reproductivity and a short longevity a system, a human system or a, a living system that's exposed to low-grade stressors will have prolonged longevity and somewhat uh, diminished reproductive um, capabilities. This, this is the nature. I mean, we, we have to look at our, our cells as communities. I mean, we are interacting. We have one, we have the organism, which is the, it's like looking at the world population. And then we have these different continents, different communities within that, and then even micro communities within that. We need to start considering that our, our, our bodies are very similar to that kind of approach. You, you have the idea is that you want to create a system-wide health rather than an isolated uh, community that is healthy and neglecting the rest. You know, we do that with cancer therapy. We just take the wrong approach to cancer therapy now. I mean, we go in and try to poison cells to to cure cancer. And, you know, the cancer cells' whole goal is to adapt and, and take over. So it's always responding to that stuff. But if we had a uh, an organismal level control, which is where we're going now with a lot of the biologics like the um, the PNC-27s and the, and the thymus and alphas, they can go in and they can upregulate the, the entire system's regulation of this and and help boost it. We see this in antioxidants too. I mean, we, we now know that uh, taking a lot of antioxidants is actually unhealthy for us. It will, uh, it will result in poor health because we're trying to manage the, these free radicals and not all free radicals are bad right. but if you, you can upregulate the glutathione system which is the manager of this free radical system that's where health can occur awesome so hormones are one of these other things that I mentioned is where uh, if you add too much of it you may be interfering with some of these inherent feedback patterns in the body, uh, whether it's hypothalamic pituitary, you know, adrenal, gonadal, thyroid, you are a hormone expert. And we've had some of these conversations. And I feel like you've sort of blown my mind in terms of how you think about it. So tell me your thoughts. What do you think about adding DHEA or testosterone or progesterone or, or estrogen or, or pregnenolone? I mean, the, the list is long. Adrenal support, glandulars in particular. Um, what are your thoughts about doing that and how the body responds? And where does this fit into this idea that stress is, is good and, and then also into healthy aging? Well, I think one of the things to clarify up front is that my belief system in the in the way the human system ages is that it's programmed into our DNA, and and our you know the Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest is is not proving out well. You know, if that were the case, um, we would we would have no such thing as altruism in our society. It just wouldn't exist. Um, what we look at is the the molecule called DNA is all about thriving of the the community and the species, and so it makes adaptive changes in order to have that occur. But also, it is programmed to age and die. 
And the reason it does that, we think, is because in order to have adaptation of changing environments over time, we need to pass these messages on to offspring with alterations in the code. And most of that alteration is occurring at the epigenome level or through microRNAs and things like that, where we're getting transgenerational passage of, um, of survival and thriving type expressions in there. I mean, our, our DNA is truly a, um, it's a library of our ancestry. It, it has all the records of it, um, true past life experience coded in the DNA itself. I mean, this is three billion base pairs of code. We have, we don't even have a 1% idea of what this stuff is doing right now. But getting back to my point, the programmed aspect of aging one of the components of that is that hormonal deterioration. So as we get older, we become more prone to disease. We become less uh, meticulous about monitoring for aberrant things happening like cancer cells. And um, we, we gradually accumulate uh, these zombie cells that, that are called senescent cells that will secrete toxins into the environment. They won't die. They take up nutrients and everything like that. And like zombies, uh, they zombify everything around them. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, that's why senolytics are such a big area of research right now is how do we clear these cells now uh, when it comes to aging? And they're having dramatic effects, even with just a 30% clearance of senescent cells. There's huge reverse aging occurring. Um, but, you know, this is the hormonal piece of it is really important because it's a natural part of aging because it's programmed in there, but it's not a healthy part of aging. And we, the way I see it, we no longer have a need with gene editing and the ability to manipulate environments and things like that. We no longer have a need to age and die in that sense, in the sense that, you know, the purpose that, that we have that coded in our DNA is so that we can adapt and change over time. But now we're getting to the point where, you know, to, to really put it in an extreme, we can play God in the sense of gene editing, and, and we're not great at it right now. We're getting better at being gods, but we're not there yet. Um, but as that progresses, we're not going to have the need for the DNA to do that, and we're starting to identify within the code those, those signals that get turned on as we age that create the programmed aging. And once we start identifying those, it's going to be a big game changer for us. Well, and also part of what you were describing is uh, passing down the genetics is a big piece of this. And if you've already passed on your genetics and then you apply hormone therapies, then those hormonal therapies are not having an epigenetic effect that might affect the next generation. Is that right? Like, so maybe yeah, it's about that's a great point. When, yeah. when you're applying the hormone, the exogenous hormone. And that sort of brings me to, okay, well, what about applying exogenous hormone before you are procreating? So like oral birth control pills. Um, and then those aren't even bioidentical, right? Like there's some degree of concern around that. But applying bioidentical hormones at menopause, say, or andropause, maybe less risk, especially at a population level, because procreations already happen typically. Yeah, and, and, and that's something you look at, but you also have to look at what's happening to our society as a whole. I mean, we're seeing individuals in their 20s, even late teens, 
that have testosterone levels of 80 year olds that have such dysfunction in their in their estrogen and progesterone that they don't they don't have normal periods you know what's happening there and what we're seeing there is where the the genetic code is being disrupted the epigenome is being disrupted by by endocrine disrupting chemicals we think in in the environment so you know like i said the the DNA itself is designed to adapt and thrive in changing environments, but when it's getting a signal that gives it a false signal, it's like a Trojan horse, then it responds in a way that isn't appropriate. And I think that's why we're seeing, you know, we've seen 50% loss in uh, sperm counts uh, worldwide in the past, I think it's uh, 30 years. I mean, 50%. We're not to the point where that 50% drop is causing infertility yet. But, you know, there's a trend there that's a little scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. And we're seeing 200-point drops in, in total testosterone levels. And, you, you know, I see all these people coming in with these really high sex hormone binding globulins all of a sudden. Don't know what's happening with that. And, and in a individual in their 20s that has this you know what do you do you know this is a time in their life that they should be really at the top of their game their physiology should be peaking at this point and they're not able to do that yeah do you have uh, some sense of what might be going on i know you said you don't know exactly what's happening but you're seeing high sex hormone hormone binding globulin um which in my mind i associate with a stress a stress on the system whether that's a psychosocial stress or a physical stress or a toxic burden um do you have some sense or or a guess about what's going on there I mean, the best guess we've got right now is that it's coming from a lot of these uh, endocrine-disrupting chemicals in the environment. I mean, we're spraying stuff onto uh, onto the plants that haven't really even been tested in human trials very well. We've got uh, plasticizers that you know we we didn't really test before they were released. I mean, you've got the phthalates, you've got the BPCs or PBC. What? <laughs> we're so used to saying BPC, BPC now. Yeah, yeah BPC. Um, <laughs> Um, using too many acronyms here, um, but there, you know, this is um, the the atrazine that used to be sprayed on grapes for wine as uh, one of the major endocrine disruptors for the um, for the testosterone system, and now it's still sprayed on golf courses on a regular basis, and that is a major endocrine disruptor that we we truly know the data that it exists. Uh, you're talking about the the phthalates that have been removed from all childhood things, but it didn't remove it from the the tiles on the floor that the kids play on. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're starting to get better with this. And, you know, I am not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. I just think it, it was just something we took for granted and didn't pay attention to. And now that it's so ubiquitous in our society, it's hard to reverse course on this uh, steamship that's got a lot of momentum behind it. Right. Yeah. When you, at least when I look at the news, um, this might be selecting because it's my level, my area of interest. But yesterday it was about plastics in the water column in the ocean, in the deep ocean, going all the way down to the deepest part of the oceans we've ever explored. There, there are plastic pieces of plastic, and it's in every single organism. Um, so every single life uh, in the deep ocean has some degree of plastic in it. And we don't know how this is affecting all of that ecosystem. And then of course, how it's affecting our own. Also the, the um, nonstick, the uh, P 
PUFOs or something. There's another acronym there that I can't recall. But yeah. the nonstick surfaces, how those have come out of commercial use, but they persist in dairy farms, in in the groundwater. And so these, these things, they persist for a long time. And there's this balance. There's this... Uh, we, we need to hold both. We need to be both t- completely terrified of them and not overly anxious that we can't get sleep at night and it, it's detrimental to our health, but aware enough that when there are toxins and chemicals we can control um, in terms of you know what we choose to eat or how we choose to um, live, uh, what buildings we go into, what we avoid, that we make educated choices about the degree of toxin we're exposed to. Well, and I, th- I think you hit, hit it on the head there. I mean, it's, you know, we we have a lot of fear mongers out there that are, you know, trying to, to generate fear online, and that's their approach to bringing awareness to it, or they want to blame somebody. You know what, let's, let's stop doing all of this and get to creating something positive as far as an outcome and a change in the system rather than trying to blame who did it or or why they did it or anything like that it's just you know it is what it is let's let's move forward and say okay how can we address this at this point and um this this whole fear mongering just kills me I, you know I, I just I know people do it because it draws attention to it I mean you know you you have those statements that that make you want to read an article and it's usually fear based um, but it's it's not the way to to really address this and make a change right it's again it goes back to creating that new paradigm yes right so hormones um, you have a ton of experience in in using testosterone in particular for for men. Can you just start with the basics of male hormone replacement therapy? Yeah, I mean, in male hormones, there's not a there's not a well established. This is a normal or optimal level. Um, you'll look at labs and you see basically reference ranges, and reference ranges don't have any significant clinical value even though people want to attribute it to that but you ask lab directors of the labs that run these they'll say there's no clinical relevance whatsoever to the reference ranges that we promote because it's not been established and it's because everybody is different in what works best for them what i see is that um there's a lot of focus on total testosterone, and now with this this uptick that we're seeing in all the sex hormone binding globulin, it falsely elevates the the total testosterone. So you got to start paying attention to free, and then you know it depends on how free is measured. Is it measured direct? Is it measured as a calculated value? You've got to look at that. Then you've got to look at you know do they have symptoms that indicate that that's not in an optimal range? And you hear me say optimal because I. I don't like to to say that it's a normal range because there is no normal range for everybody. There's an optimal range for each individual, and that can vary pretty widely in, in what they respond best to. And that's why everybody we treat as an N of one, and we look at it and say, okay, let's try this dose. Let's see what levels we achieve with that. How do you feel? And that requires a little bit of patience. I think there are still... Um, patients who come in to me and, you know, they really want that black and white answer. Okay. Okay. Where do I want to be? What number are we shooting for? And um, as much as I appreciate that goal and goal oriented approach, um, there, there's some nuance here. There's a lot of nuance. And when you talk about it, um, 
this was news to me recently when you described how how important it is to look at the free testosterone versus just looking at total testosterone. And so many people are talking about, okay, you got to be above a thousand or between 700 and 1200. And it's all about that number. And you just really throw that out and say, Hey, it's not all about that number. The more important number is the free test or the right. Is that right? Free testosterone. Correct. So after you've kind of calculated out what's bound and sex hormone binding globulin is a big part of that. And then the other piece that's paramount is how the patient feels. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it doesn't do you any good to have a number on paper. It's, you know, people do that all the time with thyroid. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll put them on thyroid medications and they'll normalize their numbers and they never even ask if they feel different. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, what's this about? Are we treating a number? Are we treating the person? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a combination of both that we have to look at. And, and you said it very clearly um, that people want black and white. And this is the old way of thinking. This is complicated thinking. You know, there was an article, I think it was yesterday, uh, from, uh, it was in Medium, it's called Facing Complexity Means Befriending Uncertainty and Ambiguity. And there was a quote in there that I loved, and I've got it here on my desktop somewhere. Most, most causality in nature is not linear in the sense that effects follows cause in a linear way. Due to radical interconnectivity, systemic interactions and feedback loops causality is more often than not circular rather than linear and this is describing a complex system and you know here it's a classic example of the hormone system you know it's got it's got interconnectivity interactions and feedback loops that all affect the outcome and if you're not considering all of these then you're not taking a full look at the system to to create an outcome that's going to be optimal. And I have to chuckle at myself because I we have this conversation and intellectually I absolutely get it and in my life I try to live it as much as I can, but my resistance is so still there. I'm like, no, no, we still want those numbers. No, no, we still need to have this. You know, it's so comforting to have that black and white and it, in that uncertainty. Um, like just using that word, there's some discomfort that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I can only imagine you know, and I'm, I'm relatively familiar with this, but to have patients and, and people at a, at a bigger level who maybe haven't even had this conversation, asking them to embrace that uncertainty is really challenging. Well, and the way I phrase it is that we gather as much data as we can on the individual to, to increase our probabilities but it's still all probabilities. So even genetic data, that's why I, I, I've been so adamant about, you know, genetic reports should never be given direct to consumer because they don't work in a way. Thank it, you. It is, <laughs> yes, it is truly a probability that you look at. And mm-hmm. and there's other aspects that are going to, to change outcomes with that. You know, MTHFR is the classic one. I love this one. You know, everybody, you know, the online community is like, saturated with all these fear mongers on MTHFR and I see I see MTHFR homozygous all the time that are very healthy and and thriving and everything like that and 
they've been to a doctor that told them that they're they had to take all this stuff in order to correct their mthfr i'm like there's nothing wrong with you, with you. Yeah, i Just, could not agree more and it's so binary right it, it says yes or no and it can only go in the direction of a deficiency or or an abnormality of i always say variant but a lot of people come in and they're like i have this genetic i i'm Oh gosh! No, I try they not say to say mutation. It. Mutation. Is what they say. It's a mutation, <laughs> and that, that word I, I tried to completely block it out, and apparently I've, I've had some success because I couldn't remember it. Um, but yeah, to come in and say I have this mutation, and then to identify so strongly with this mutation—that's literally this one piece of a million, if not trillion-piece puzzle—and and to say this is what is wrong in my body—it's it's so detrimental. Yes. And people that that have have significant challenges in their health are always looking for an answer, and mm-hmm. they they get thrilled when somebody can give them an answer, even though it's the wrong answer most of the time. They are thrilled that they have something to hang their hat on, and and from a uh, you know from a kind of placebo effect aspect of it, they'll get better for a couple of weeks and. Then all of a sudden they're like, okay, what happened? It's not working anymore. And they're looking for someone else to give them that answer. So it's this constant movement between experts in in their area. And I always say, you know, if you go to to the guy with a with only a hammer in his tool belt, you know, everything you have is a nail. And that's the problem. I mean, you know, you have somebody with fatigue and they go to a Lyme doctor and they'll say, oh, you've got Lyme. Well, I don't have antibodies for it. Well, it's okay. They don't show up very often, but you've got Lyme and we need to treat it. Or they'll go to the thyroid doctor and the thyroid doctor will say, oh, it's because your thyroid is messed up. And then they'll go to the chronic fatigue specialist who will tell them it's because of that. They people get very stovepiped into their their own area of expertise and they try to apply that across the board to everything so the idea is you want to find a clinician or a coach that has a full tool belt that right. can go into any any aspect of this and not have to be um, stuck in this mode of you know this is the only tool I have so it has to fit this tool mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah certainly and applying a a new paradigm to that or a a new approach a systems-based approach to okay well where do we start because if there is some complexity and there is this litany of symptoms what's the first step and are the is that first step but you know we have these rules that we can sort of apply and certainly in my practice you know i like to get toxicity out early on because I think that elevates the whole system. Um, But it's not always the case. So we can apply these rules, but with lots of exceptions for that individual that's in front of us. Um, Can you describe sort of your general approach? So someone comes to you, uh, you have a patient who's establishing care with you, wants to optimize health. What is your first step? Well, one, I tell them they're not a patient, they're a client, um, because I'm providing a service. I, I don't want to have them have that barrier by thinking they're a patient, and because patient just connotes sick to me. Um, we also do not use diagnosis codes. Uh, we do not classify anything as a diagnosis. I mean, people will say, but I have diabetes, and I'll say, no, you have insulin resistance that's requiring medication. 
that's it. It's a it's a due to a lifestyle pattern that you have. I mean, if they're type two diabetics, if they're uh, like I had an MS patient, and I said, no, don't classify yourself as MS. Classify yourself as you're you're developing antibodies to the to the sheath that's surrounding your neurons, and it's because your immune system is out of balance in some way. Once we get them to start identifying based on the process rather than the the definition, it's um, it, it changes their perspective. When they suddenly realize, oh, I'm not diabetic, I don't have that label, I have insulin resistance that is just part of my lifestyle, then I can make progress with them. So that's the first thing I do. But I also don't go after the the particular issue that they come in with. When I'm working with a client, I prioritize the entire human system at the same time. So they may come in and they say, you know, I've got this uh, chronic back pain. And, and I'm like, okay, well, how's your sleep? You know, how, what's your nutrition like? How's your exercise? How's your cognitive performance? What's your environment like? Uh, we go through, I mean, we do a full two-day intake. I mean, we're looking at everything in these people. So we're, what we do is we gather as much detail on what constitutes their current state of their system to get a picture. So all these little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are being put together, their genetics, their labs, their quality of life assessments, their health consciousness scale, their cognitive performance scores, their Dutch test. Um, you know, we just have a slew of, uh, of information. We assess their autonomic nervous system, their brain, brainwave patterns. And it doesn't matter if they're coming in because they have back pain. What they're coming in for is because their system is out of balance. And what we do is we can't raise the system into balance by fixing one thing. It's very rare that, you know, seven parts of the system are in balance and one part is out. It's usually, okay, they're not quite in that state of homeostasis in the entire system. So we get them to not focus on it. It's just like weight loss. You know, people will come in for weight loss. And nobody, number one, nobody ever comes in for weight loss. It's never a goal. Their goal is something else. Uh, you know, it's to, to have more attention from their spouse or to look good on stage or, you know, whatever it is. Their, their motivation is not weight loss. And you've got to identify what their motivation is first and foremost and then you identify all the factors that are not in homeostasis you work with all of them together to bring them up into into a balanced state because when you're there the body tends to take care of most problems on its own but it's usually that there are multiple areas that are out of balance you know people come in for i have all these entrepreneurs i work with and they're like i want that that limitless pill you know that give me that peptide that will boost my brain function and i'm like how many hours are you sleeping? Well, five. Okay, well, you know what? You don't get anything until we got sleep and nutrition. And, you know, I go through the thing. You got to dial these things in. And um, they don't they don't consider that. Everybody's looking for that pill that will fix them or that one thing. And there's not one thing when it comes to health of a complex system. Fantastic. Dr. Stickler, this has been incredible. Um, there's, if there was one takeaway, I think that was it. There is not one pill when it comes to a complex system. Exactly. Thank you so, so, so much for your time today. Um, this has been 
so fascinating, so exciting, um, especially for me around the peptides, if you can't tell. Love it. I was like, we didn't get into a lot of hormones. <laughs> we didn't get I know. That was completely my bias. <laughs> Jacqueline was like, hormones, hormones, Dr. Stickler, you and hormones. And I was like, uh, can we just talk about pep- peptides all day? Um, and so we'll have to bring you back. It's, it's, we're Absolutely. lucky because you work here. So um, yeah, you know where I work. So. <laughs> I know where to find you. We'll get you back on. Um, and I will look forward to that as well. Um, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your expertise. I, you know, you and I, we know that we're on the same page, so there's, a, um, a lot of agreement. Um, but certainly it's so, that's what it is, right? We're Neurohacker Collective. There's community around this and we're just, we're building that tribe that is this new paradigm and it's so thrilling and exciting. And so thank you for being a part of it. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Dan Stickler. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and also leave us a comment on our site if you have any thoughts or questions on this episode. This podcast is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. To celebrate episode number 50, we're offering a special discount for our podcast listeners. Use the coupon code PODCAST50, all lowercase, PODCAST50, for 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.